Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you. In the book of Acts again this morning, chapter 20, we will consider verses 1 through 16, but we will stand and read verses 7 through 9. The title of this morning's message is not an encouragement. The sleeping in church, that's the title. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning at verse 7 through verse 9. Now, when the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Please be seated. Well, short lesson is if you (laughs) fall asleep in church, you're going to get killed. Well, let's get to the serious part of this. I mean, the, the, the second section of chapter 20 is, to me, one of the greatest sections in the Bible. We won't get that this week, but this morning, uh, looking at all that's happening, no one else used the Roman roads like Paul that we know of. Now, it's important to point out, we don't have every single place that Paul stopped and worked and ministered, nor do we have an account of what the other apostles were doing as much as Paul. That doesn't mean they weren't out out there. I mean, there was Egypt, there was Babylon, Assyria. There were plenty of places for the others to go, which they did. But, but God gave Paul a historian, Luke the physician. And Luke records so much about what, what was going on. Now, God had already established, allowed Rome to be established as the world empire, and the Romans were notorious for building roads. We all are familiar with that phrase, all roads lead to Rome, but only one leads to heaven, and that is the way of Christ. Well, no one else that we know of was using these roads like Paul, and not only the roads, he had to have a common language, which was given by Alexander the Great. The Greeks before the Romans were the world power. And uh, so all of these stops that he was making, he didn't have to relearn a language. It was just right there for him. Everyone, everyone was speaking Greek. And the, these things, of course, greatly helped spread the gospel. Uh, so with that in mind, we look now at verse 1. And I give you that little background because we're going to come across a lot of his travels. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, remember, at this point in time, the only New Testament writings circulating was the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. This is what we believe. James, the epistle of James, the letter of James, and Paul's letter to the Galatians and the Thessalonians. That's pretty much it. He's going to write about this time the first Corinthian letter, And then he'll get up to Macedonia where he'll write the second one. And and around this time also, he will write the letter to the um, uh, Romans also. 
So a, a lot going on, uh, just exciting things. Uh, it says here, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed. He had courtesy enough to say goodbye. I think it is significant that God wanted Luke to enter that. That he took the time to say goodbye to people. He just didn't leave because people count. I mean, just because you don't do things their way doesn't mean they're not important. Uh, And, you know, some people are like that. You don't do it my way, you you know, there's a problem. And and that's unfortunate. It says here to go to Macedonia. Well, Macedonia, Greece today, we see them as one place. But then Macedonia was to the north of uh, Greece to the south where uh, in Macedonia there were these solid churches that Paul had established. The church at Philippi where he left Luke to minister. The church at Thessalonica and Berea. Those are the three that we know about. When he gets down to Greece, then there are other churches there. It's Corinth, possibly Athens. There was uh, Achaia and Sancria. So uh, very much Christianity was being established, but there was so much more work to do, and it would cost him pain to, to, to do it when he gets in front of Caesar. Well, in verse 2, now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece. <clears throat> so the distinction made between Macedonia and Greece is very pronounced. And here's how we know he's in Corinth at this point. Corinth was, would, would have been referred to as the, in the region of Greece. Now, He's encouraging them when he had gone over the region and encouraged them with many words. Encouragement is the outflow of of the Spirit by faith. But there's one key feature that must always go along with biblical encouragement, and that is sobriety. Because, you know, people, you know, they, they, they want to encourage you because they want a better outcome. But that doesn't mean that their encouragement is always right. Uh, sometimes people do not need encouragement. They need a rebuke. And sometimes that can come in the form of silence. So, uh, you know, just because we want something doesn't mean it's the appropriate action. To be led by the Spirit, is, it's everything for we who claim Christ. Paul, here he is facing shipwreck. We'll get this in Acts chapter 27. And he says, Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. And, then he goes on to say, however, we must run aground on a certain island. So he is encouraging them to take heart, but you're still going to face the storm. You're going to suffer shipwreck, but we will survive. God gave him that. God given, didn't give him that. He said, don't worry, it's going to be all right. God told me. And if God didn't tell you, then they suffered the shipwreck and how many would have been lost. So we should be sober when we uh, speak on behalf of the Lord all the time. This, incidentally, is the sixth time that we read of Paul strengthening believers in Acts. It's a very serious thing with him. It's a very serious thing with many of us. Now, here is something that I find exciting. Four times in this chapter, Luke makes note of Paul's speaking time. Here in verse 2, he says he encouraged them with many words. Pay attention to the adjectives. In verse 7, he says he continued his message until midnight. In verse 9, Paul continued speaking. And in verse 11, talked a long while, even till daybreak. Those are quotes. I don't think Luke was being humorous 
I think he's just giving us the history. I don't think he is any, you know, criticism in any of this. If anything, he is saying the Christians had such an appetite to hear the word of God. And for Paul to speak like this, they were seemed to be very fine with it. Great hunger in Macedonia and Troas. Troas is where Eutychus, who fell out the window, is. We'll be coming to him in a minute. Verse 3 says, And stayed three months. This is in Corinth. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Well, uh, at Corinth, he had earlier written to Corinth. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 16, 6. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. Well, now he's there in Corinth. He's going to go north to Macedonia where he will write the second Corinthian letter. And there's a third one we don't have. And also he makes a short trip back to to Corinth because there was a mutiny taking place. Oh, Corinth. I lament with Paul where he again faced mutiny from lesser people. How does that work? These folks knew nothing of ministry. They knew nothing of Christ until he got there. They were doing very little for Christ. In fact, they were going against him. They had the audacity to criticize this man. You just, I mean, is there some rule written in life where there's always some? Well, of course, he handled it magnificently. In his second letter, he writes, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. There's a plea in that. There's a sob that belongs to that, reaching out to them. And it kind of interesting in that second letter, you know, he, he just opens up and then, and then he hardens up a little bit because the troublemakers, the mutineers, were still active. One reason Paul may not have stayed in some of the places that he visited is because uh, he wore out his welcome amongst the unbelievers. And this is the case here where they plotted against him in verse 3. Uh, he, you know, th- why? Well, because he's mindful of the things of God and not the things of men. And this is the case to this very day. I mean, uh, you, if, you know, if you're in a marriage and you're a believer, the unbeliever is, you know, can become quickly fed up with the fact that you're mindful of the things of God when they may want, you know, material things. I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's many avenues that goes down. And so uh, here he is, very mindful of God. He's going to leave Corinth because of the plot against him to kill him. And he, instead of going to Syria, he wants to go to Jerusalem. He's made that clear. And he's taking money to them. Instead of going uh, south, to, uh, west, uh, southeast towards Jerusalem, he decides, you know what, I'm going to go north up to the other churches in Macedonia again, and I'm going to swoop back around. Obviously, led by the Holy Spirit, and it bore much fruit. Psalm 112, verse 7, He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. That's what we see Paul doing. As we follow Paul, we find him always calm and confident. I think to serve the Lord in his 
role as an apostle in a leadership capacity, you have to have an element of, I don't care what anybody thinks. When I know I'm right with the Lord, this is what my instructions are. You have to have that. And many will pick up on that and admire it, and some will be offended by it. Well, you know, you, you cannot please everyone. It's just not possible. But this courage is the outcome of clear vision of Christ. He knew who his Lord was. He knew what he had to do. His heart was fixed. And that was the secret of his courage. And that's available to us. Now, at this time, when he gets up to Macedonia, where Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea were, he writes to the Romans, the Roman letter that we have. And these letters would eventually, you know, they'd reach their destination. They'd be read in church. Then they were circulated. They were copied and put in circulation. So much so that um, we have them to this day. Romans chapter 15, verse 25. He's writing from Macedonia where he is going to right now. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Now this will explain much of why he does what he does on the way to Jerusalem. They're taking cash with them. Because the Jerusalem Christians are facing hardship, likely still connected to uh, Pentecost, and and when they were coming to Christ and and being, you know... uh, ostracized by their own people. And many of them had flooded into Jerusalem from other places and stayed there. Anyway, he decided, it says here in verse 3, to return through Macedonia. And uh, uh, again, I've already mentioned the strong churches that were, were up in that region, whereas the ones he's leaving behind in Corinth weren't that strong. Uh, not as not as the other three, at least. Uh, verse 4, so, so Pater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe, Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Well, Tychicus will be a, a, a troubleshooter for Paul. Trophimus, he will eventually have to leave in Ephesus sick. Paul could not heal people just because he decided to heal them. He was always subject Gifts are always subject to the, to the king, uh, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Aristarchus will come against him. Secundus means second. He's either maybe the second born, or he could have been a slave uh, that was uh, taken along and was uh, the, sort of the second in command, the first being left behind. Uh, anyway, those are just possibilities. But seven men from four regions where Paul established churches headed out to carry the cash to Jerusalem. Verse 5, these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. Well, Luke had remained in Philippi when that church was started, but now the pronoun changes. And uh, he waited for us at Troas, meaning Luke was picked up at at Philippi, and and now he's rejoined Paul, and he'll be with him. Uh, uh, Even to to the Second Timothy letter where it was close to Paul's end. Well, uh, anyway, you can compare Acts 16.12 with Acts 16.40. You see the pronouns change after he goes to Philippi, and that's how we arrive at this. Understand how much Christianity is taking place between the lines. This is not just a trek of history. These, these men were spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ at risk to their lives. 
And uh, these stops that they were making and the, the layovers, and there was trouble, they would, there was joy, there was everything that, uh, that goes on with human beings in, in church and in Christ was taking place. This was dynamic service. These men didn't say, well, I'm saved. What else? Uh, you know, I, don't, I don't do anything else. Christ did all the dying. Others are doing all the serving. No, they're, they're, they're in action. Uh, and it gets better. Verse 6. But we, again, the pronoun we. And, uh, but we sailed away from Philippi, verse 6, after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Well, from Philippi to Troas... 150 sea miles. Uh, Luke, uh, as I mentioned, rejoins him. This is probably, uh, we're probably about 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension. So about 1965 years ago, these things were taking place, and they really haven't stopped. Uh, after the days of unleavened bread. It's interesting, the, that's the Passover season, the seven days that uh, made up the Passover season. Uh, that's a, the crucifixion and resurrection to the Christian. The resurrection fulfilled the Passover feast, its symbolisms, uh, its teachings that were given to the Jewish people. The New Testament points out that Christ is our Passover. And Paul just wrote the very thing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrifice for us. Uh, the you know, there's a whole sermon there, but this city Troas is a major seaport along the Aegean Sea, modern day Turkey, where much of this took place. And uh, the Passover occurs in the spring. We'll be celebrating it here in uh, pretty soon in April. Uh, but the winter travel was too risky there in, in the Mediterranean Aegean Sea. Uh, the, the, the winter winds would, would bring uh, just the, the dangers on the sea, and they would try to wait it out. In Paul's four journeys that we have, three of them he went as a free man, and of course the final one to Rome, he was, um, went as a prisoner of Rome, but Rome also paid the, the fee. We have over 5,600 miles of overland travel and another 6,800 miles of overseas travel. So I talked about the roads of Rome, the shipping lanes of Rome. Uh, they were not wasted on this man. And again, that asterisk that tells us, don't forget, others were traveling with the gospel to other places too. Uh, of course, Western civilization has excelled as civilizations go, and the gospel um, had, had taken root there. Verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Well, he did a lot of work at, at uh, Troas with the gospel. And why don't we have a letter to them? He references them in Second Timothy later in his life. He says, Bring the cloak, he writes to Timothy, which I left, with Carpus at Troas, when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. There's a, there's a, there's a zeal in that language. You know, he wants to cloak, winter's coming, he's, he wants to be warm, evidently he had a, a nice garment. 
But then, but he then, he, you know, bring the books, especially the parchments, which are probably his, his notes, things that he wrote down as he studied the books. And here he is facing death, and he's still in the learning mode for Christ. And uh, so, anyway, that was at Troas. Uh, no letter to them, probably because they behaved themselves. They, were, they did not need correction. Not that all of them, because Philippi behaved itself too, and it was just a joyful letter to them. Uh, uh, Coloss- the church at Colossae was dealing with Gnostics, but uh, overall they were looking to abide. It says, now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Well, the first day of the week is Sunday. Uh, they're coming to church and possibly, not necessarily, communion. Just because it says break bread doesn't automatically it's communion. Well, may- maybe not, but maybe yes. Uh, it's not something to get tripped over. This, uh, uh, the key uh, is, uh, well, well, let me add this about Troas. It's because, it, again, so much belonged to it. Paul had a, a vision from Troas to go into Europe, to go into Philippi from Troas. He missed Titus. He was worried about Titus. The door had opened for ministry in Troas, but, but Titus was on his mind. Was he safe? And he had to leave. Uh, and, of course, he's going to raise Eutychus from the de- dead here. But going back to Second. Corinthians, when he's talking to them about what was involved in him getting to Corinth again, he says, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. So he gives us a little history, so we pause here. Maybe you think that this is all about them. And you fail to see yourself in the story. That is a tactical mistake, especially you younger Christians, you teens. You think this is a history lesson. Well, it's got history in it, but it is for you. It is God challenging and speaking to you. He's saying, I am sovereign. I allowed these roads to bring my gospel to the world. I allowed this common language and I allowed this religion to bring the story of my son to the world. And I want to tell you about it. And I want to ask you, what are you doing? Are you? Are you listening to people who are against me? Are you impressed by them? Have you become advocates for Satan? And you walk around, strutting around, talking about, I believe this and I believe that. And it's all contrary to Christ. And you have the audacity to come to his church and sing songs? I'll tell you what's happening if that's you. Satan has jerked you out of your mind. He has grabbed you by your collar and he has jerked you out of your mind. And you're dumb enough to love it. Now you're either going to get angry with me if you're guilty of these things. Or you're going to say, Lord, is it I? I want to be right with you and I want to go to heaven when I die. Because if you're becoming Satan's advocate, your chances of going to heaven have greatly diminished. Satan is not playing. He doesn't like you. He doesn't care what you do so long as it is against Christ. And if you're listening to other people who don't love the Lord, you are a delicacy for the devil. You reap what you sow. Don't say you've not been warned and encouraged and loved. And uh, if you are guilty of following the devil, 
Christ is reaching out to you as he reached out to that entire world. Why do you think this man is traveling 5,600 miles on the land and another 6,000? Why do you think he's suffering shipwreck and fear of robbers and all the stuff that was going on? To pluck him out of hell as a brand plucked from the burning, using the language of the prophet Amos. When you come to church, this is the last place it's a joke. You happen to have a hysterical pastor. But we're not playing around. And if you think you can toy with sin with that flippant attitude, you think you can do better than Jesus Christ, you're being jerked out of your mind. You're out of your mind because Satan has pulled you out of your mind. There's really no excuse for this. And so I encourage you, you stick with the Lord. You, you learn courage. You learn to stand up against the wilds and the darts of the devil. Because he can be beaten back. Well, I'll come back to that hopefully. Because i got plenty more to say. Well, before I go, I'll say some more now. You think about the churches up in Pergamos and Thyatira, Tyra, Thyatira, Pergamos, Laodicea, and Sardis. Where Satan was getting away with evil. Who in those churches was there to look up to for the youth? You go to a church like Smyrna and Philadelphia and Philippi and Thessalonica and others. And you find that there are a lot of heroes in those churches. But it still comes down to the individual. You're either going to find heroes in the church and in the scripture or you're going to find them in the world. Now there can be people in the world who greatly influence you in a positive way. I think of two men in my life that influenced me in a positive way and they were both unbelievers. My father had passed when I was 14. And no man filled that gap. However, I still learned from men. And I remember one, Eddie Conklin. He's dead and gone now. He's a superintendent on a job that I was on, a bridge. And uh, my mom had passed away that night. But I knew she was in heaven. So it was a relief. It was, you know, I know where this is going. And I was very happy about that part of it. So I went to work. And I mentioned, you know, I'll be taking a couple of days off to the shop steward. Well, he told the foreman, which was, was Eddie. I didn't know him well. And as I was working on a barge, leaving the barge, going off, whatever we was doing, and whatever it was, was magnificent because that's what I do. <laughs> he just puts his hand on my shoulder and says, I heard about your mom. It's a tough loss. And it was as though he downloaded something into me. It was just a, that perfect moment where another human being sympathized with me on a level that I did not know I needed sympathy on. I thought I was good. Everything was fine. I didn't break down or anything like that, but it never left me. I can still feel his hand on my shoulder saying it was a tough loss. Another one was I had a first sergeant, didn't know him long, and uh, I had a difference of opinion with a officer and they moved me to another company. I look back, I don't know if I was right or wrong, but you know, as you get mature, you leave room for that. They asked me 20 years ago, I said, of course I was right. But as you get older, you say, I don't know, who knows. Uh, anyhow, uh, uh, First Sergeant Henderson, uh, he, I won't imitate his voice because he had a unique way of talking, very tall and a big head too. Anyway, he says, he said, Corporal Gaston, why don't you take my car? He had this little sports car. I think it was an MG, it was a little sports car, a little stick shift. 
Take it around the block for a while. Those are big blocks. Those base, they were like five city blocks long. Uh, not exaggerating. Okay, four. Anyhow, you know, so I got in and I drove this car around. I didn't even think about, hey, I could wipe this car out and I'd be really be bad. You know, when you're young, you're really dumb and you don't know it. And uh, anyway, I bring the car back and, and I just never forgot that here was a man that had no incentive to reach out to me like that whatsoever. But he showed me kindness and he showed me trust. And he made me feel like I belonged. And though I couldn't articulate that at the time, I knew it. And so, yeah, we want heroes. They do exist out the church to some degree. But they need to be in the church too. And I've got many church heroes also. So for you young folks, one day you're going to get your chance to be a hero or not, should the Lord tarry. You older Christians, you have an opportunity to be that example without forcing it. Uh, Just strive for the straight and narrow. Well, coming back to this, this is a Sunday service. The reason why the early church met on Sundays and to this day meets on Sundays as a rule, although there are those Sabbatarians that uh, demonstrate they don't understand the New Testament, uh, but that, you know, they they could have worse problems. Well, Christ rose on Sunday. Jesus is the first fruits mentioned in Leviticus 23.10, which happens, 23.10.11, which happens the first fruits are offered on the, the day after the Sabbath, which is Sunday. Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and says, Jesus Christ is the first fruits. And so that is your connection to a Sunday gathering, a Sunday assembly. Although we're free to assemble any day we want. Our society is geared to uh, Sunday worship. Most people have off on, on the weekends. The Holy Spirit was given to the church. On a Sunday, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And then it is perpetuated, as we see here in chapter 7 and in 1 Corinthians 16, the church continued to meet on the Sunday. So that's why we meet on, on the Sunday. And it's a very, it, it should be that way. I would scratch my head, why are we meeting on Thursdays only? And why is that the big day? Who rose on Thursday? What happened on Thursday? But you can say the Sunday, well, I'll tell you, a lot happened on Sunday. Anyway, it says here in verse 7, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Oh, he, the one that wrote, preached the word in season, out of season, convict, rebuke, exhort, with all longsuffering and, and teaching, and, 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 and this is what he is doing. He says, because the time is coming. Well, they just want their ears tickled. They want to hear sermons that they like, not sermons that God wants to give. And so, you know, here he is doing that very thing. Although this has the feel here in Troas that he's not, you know, he's just teaching God's word. And they are just gobbling it up. Verse verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Now, Luke is a physician, a medical physician, a I I don't know that there's any other kind, but uh, he's giving Eutychus a little help. He's sort of like, you know, come on, let's not be hard on the guy falling asleep. Let's just think about the room was hot. You know, Paul went on and on. uh, The smoke. (laughs) He had a hard day's work. Uh, So he's, well, you want to say, well, Luke, did anybody else fall asleep or was it just him? (laughs) 
So conditions are ripe uh, here for him to fall asleep. I'm getting sleepy just reading it. (laughs) Verse 9, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus. He really doesn't have to say a certain young man because he names him. Anyhow, who was sinking into a deep sleep. Okay, let's stop and let's look at each other. Anybody falling asleep? Now's the time to wake him up. How could you fall asleep here? (laughs) Who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was, in verse 9, he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Well, for, on Eutychus, you know, talk, is there a picture in the Bible of the spirit being willing but the flesh weak? This is it. This is the, he wants to hear what Paul has to say. He probably goes to the window and I guess get some air. And, and it just, that didn't work well for him, did it? it? He ended up being his death, uh, temporary, but uh, still. So the crowded room, the springtime, the smoke, after work, the long sermon, perfect sedative. And uh, anyway, someone died during Ezekiel's prophesying also. Not likely in the room with him, but while he was giving God's word, uh, a bad guy died. Ezekiel 11, 13. Now it happened while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. <laughs> and he was a bad guy. And Ezekiel was taken by Lego. Lord, what is going on? I'm in the middle of preaching. And someone says, hey, Pelatiah just dropped dead. Well, I didn't do it. I was here preaching. <laughs> anyway, uh, in Ezekiel 8, where he, he is told to go and see what the evil men are doing behind doors in God's house, Pelatiah was one of those evil men. So anyway, verse 12 confirms, there's no mistake, Eutychus was dead. He was not injured. Verse 10, But Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. The wording is intentional. Luke recalls Elijah and Elisha doing this very thing to uh, children, and, of course, they being revived, coming back to life. And so that's the language Paul goes down, and, and, and Paul may have certainly been mindful of Elijah and Elisha taking this exact posture. Verse 11, now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak he departed. Now I'm stressing these adjectives because th- there are... It's the old saying, sermonettes for Christianettes. They can't handle the word. They, if anything, or more 20 minutes, they're checking their watch. And which just tells you something about them. Because they're not, their head's not in the game. They don't understand what is taking place in the church that Christ died for. How he set it up. And remember, the church is patterned off of the synagogues. And it's a good pattern. There are some variations, but overall, it's the same pattern. Now, we're told in verse 7 that while Paul was there, they had taken a fellowship meal. Again, possibly the communion, but surely they sent out for little Caesars. (laughs) Now, I thought of that yesterday, and I'm going to write that one down because I liked it that much. 
I mean, it's just more powerful when you actually have Caesars running around. And, and what kind of salad dressing would they have used? All right. It says he talked a long while. Now, the word talk there is homilio in the Greek, which is the source of our English word homily. A conversation, but it's become, it has now become the standard of a short sermon. So, uh, at a funeral or a wedding, you, it, more so in a funeral. I mean, because at a wedding, everybody's dressed, well, that's changing now. I've seen people come to weddings nowadays like hobos. And you want to say, excuse me, you're in the wrong place. No, it's my cousin. Oh, you, anyway, you know the satellites can see you dressed like that in public? Back to this. Uh, so you figure they're all dressed up. You might as well preach a long time. You know, it's a dress-up day. Let's have a good sermon. A funeral's a different thing. You know, you, you want to get right to the point and not stretch this out. So you, you give a homily. And I would tell a younger pastor, well, the difference between a sermon and a homily is a homily is about 20 minutes. A sermon is endless. You just go on until they can't take it anymore. <laughs> That's what happened to Eutychus. So the Bible's on my side for long preaching. But here's an interesting point about this whole thing. He just raised the guy from the dead. He fell out three stories. That's, that's 30 feet thereabout. Paul does not minimize preaching because of it. Well, you know, I did kind of go long. I should, no, he doesn't. He goes, he, he continues, picks up right with everybody. Ate, is everybody fault? Yes, okay. It was not like, well, you know what? I'm getting a little sleepy. That, you know, that pepperoni is kicking in. He does not minimize preaching. Sleeping in church did not alter the preaching of the word. I don't look out at you when I'm preaching, because not only do I see people nodding, but they all, you know, fidgeting, you know, just doing stuff. And then you'd be tempted to, what are you doing? <laughs> in front of everyone. What are you, right there in the blue. What are you doing? <laughs> and in, in the old churches in, in England, the ushers actually had poles. I'm not kidding you. And uh, there was a little ball in the end for the men. They'd tap them. Hey, wake up. We're not putting up with that. For the women, it was a feather. And they'd be like, now what? So this is a true story. We were going to use tasers. But you might get the guy next to them, and that's, you know, what collateral damage. You just have to live with it. So uh, anyhow, verse 12 then remember the title is Sleeping in Church. The answer to this thought is Paul did not minimize preaching because of droopy people. Verse 12. And they brought the young man alive and they were not a little comforted. So that confirms that the fall was temporarily fatal. He was dead. Now I should add, uh, one time in church, when before I was a pastor, did I... Man, I got hit with a sleep bomb, and if I, I, if you if you get to the point where look, I can't beat this, then get up and and go lie down in the road. <laughs> no, we don't want that. But get up because you can't. It could get to a point. You know, if maybe you're driving and you, you know you think, I can get five more miles. No, you can't. I have a friend that was a truck driver. He says I wiped out about twenty trees. It would distract a trailer. And I fell asleep. Uh, this is serious stuff. So I'm not, you know, scolding anyone, but you've got to come up with countermeasures. Verse 13, then they went ahead, 
to the ship and sailed to Azos, there intending to take Paul on board. So he gave orders, intending himself to go on foot. So from Troas to Azaz, Paul apparently travels alone with God. A.W. Chozier said, the devil does everything possible to keep us busy. As a result, very few of us are ever really alone with God. It's the idea behind the prayer closet, is you're isolated with God. And, uh, you know, uh, turn the radio off sometimes if you don't have another opportunity. Uh, Anyhow, he says, for so he had given orders. Now, these men were loyal, and they were dedicated. And when he gave an order, they were off and running with it. He never took orders, Paul, from church committees or anybody else except except the Lord. Because that was his position. Now, if he was in a lesser position, he would, he would comply. But he was the leader. What's the difference between, a great difference between the church in the first century and the church today? Well, we don't have an apostle. And that means we're decentralized. You've got the Baptists, the Presbyterians, you've got all these groups. In those days, there was no such thing. Uh, it was just the church. And uh, the apostles were the authority, and it was a very nice thing to have. And these men took advantage of that. They did not waste it. It is the role of the pastor to encourage Bible-submitted or a Bible-submitted flock, as opposed to those who are liberal in their theology. Uh, you know, Harry Emerson Fosdick was pastor of the Riverside Church in Manhattan. He was a total liberal. Charles Spurgeon had to deal with the downgrade controversy. I don't like that name, but I, I, I get it. Uh, and this essentially, and he lost good friends over this. It really wore on him heavy, but he, he stood his ground. He said, I, I don't care if the dogs eat me. Uh, anyway, this was uh, creeping into the church in, in the 1800, late 1800s in the life of Spurgeon. Was, well, you know, there's really no hell. God, universalism, God is the father of everyone. No, he is not. To a Christian, God is creator and father. To the unchristian, he's creator, and they have a different father. And that's why Jesus said to the religious Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. So this universalistic teaching is contrary to what the Bible makes clear. And Fosdick was applauded as this you know, great mind in the pulpit because of this modern view. And so were those in the days of Spurgeon with their modernism. Uh, you know, they wanted to cling to the historical doctrines and at the same time say the Bible is not infallible. And uh, so uh, these, these kind of things exist. Those who are unfaithful, a pastor is to encourage a submitted flock and he is to rebuke an unsubmitted flock, as, as Spurgeon uh, did, although the, those that attended his church uh, did not you know, were overall a submitted flock to God's word. And I think many are confused about where God has planted them. So I've seen this so many times. Some two, you know, two people come to church. One decides they're going to leave that church. And the other says, okay, I'm going with you. Uh, excuse me. What did Jesus say to you? I don't know. I'm going with him. You see it in families. You see it in individuals. This not being led by the Holy Spirit. So you say, why? Well, again, sometimes it's a mark of immaturity when you make your own decisions because, you know, you put on a T-shirt or a coffee cup, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord. 
You know, did you even ask the Lord, should you leave or should you go? It's a very big deal. If you have a friend that's looking for a church, pray with them. They need that. Pray that they all understand where God wants them. Not where you want them, where God wants them. I don't want anybody to, to remain in the church that God doesn't have there. Well, what's the alternative? Well, I sure hope God doesn't have you here. You see the logic? It's not emotional. Cut that emotional out of such approaches to our faith. It's truth. Uh, sometimes that behavior is an indication of confusion. No one's ever told them this. No one's ever come up and said, hey, you've got to be a new wineskin. Else you're going to burst. And you have to follow the leadings. Now, I know as I speak that these messages are recorded and broadcast in other places. And there are other Christians that need to hear this because no one's ever said it to them. Often, when a Christian is in a not as devoted like these men were, it is a mark of a self-will, a self-willed agenda. I'm coming to this church because I want to do this, and I want them to help me do it. You know, a lot of, in the early days, it would be, you know, hey, some newcomer, can we go out to lunch? No, because I know you're trying to sell me your ministry. If I can just promote your ministry, you'll be happy with that. We can't do that. That's not what church is for. Anyhow, uh, I I don't want to stay on that anymore. Well, okay, five more minutes. No, I don't. Let's let's move on. Uh, But we're talking about these men who were committed and submitted to Paul, and because of that, he got so much done, and that's true to this day. You show a church that's sticking to the word, that's getting the gospel out or, or strengthening the lost, it's because the people in that church are focused on what they're supposed to do and submitted to God's word. Anyway, it says, intending to go on foot. So from Troas to Assos, 17 miles by Land 30 by sea, because they had to go around a little, a little peninsula there. And uh, the men on ship were carrying cash, as I mentioned. It was safer. Well, there was a better chance to escape robbers by going to the sea than uh, to worry about the pirates. Though in that part of the world, even in that time, parts of that area, there was problems with pirates. And we know this because the archaeologists have found a lot of inland communities that abandoned the shore area. Anyway, Enoch, Noah, two other men said to have walked with God. God notices the walk, Hosea chapter 11. Now, do you appreciate that? Are you a Christian that can appreciate? Look at that. The pastor goes to other verses in the Bible because they have, they're all together God's word. Or does it, is it lost on you? Do you not get it? Uh, I'm, again, back to the youth is who I'm really speaking to. Do you understand that it is the whole word of God that makes the Christian whole? And I'll f- conclude in a little while. Um, nobody's sitting by a window, so I guess I can go on a little longer. <laughs> Ephraim has encircled me with lies. God is saying this. Humans can do this. The house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. So Hosea the prophet saying to the northern kingdom, you guys aren't walking with God. You're a bunch of liars. You talk to God with your hand behind your back and your fingers crossed. You're deceitful. However, Judah, they're still getting it right. They're still walking with the Lord. And in time, Judah too stopped walking. So on this solitary journey, did Paul hear the Holy Spirit say to him, "Uh, you're going to go to Jerusalem 
And don't worry about the persecution you're going to face, because we'll get that later. Anyway, verse 14. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Verse 15. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tragilium. The next day we came to Miletus. It is so much easier to pronounce the Greek words than the Hebrew. <laughs> Just... Just go read out loud First Chronicles and see how far you can get before. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Again, he wasn't worried about the Passover. He wants to Pentecost. Uh, and, and I would imagine it's because of the, of the multitudes that would still be there of, of men. Uh, for the Pentecost celebration. That, that certainly was a factor. It's when the church was born. Technically, Christianity began at the resurrection, but the church uh, technically was, was began at uh, Pentecost. And then it, there was an evolution and a revolution at the same time. There were things that were radical changes for the Christians, and then there were things that slowly changed for the Christians. One of the radical ones was the Sunday meeting. The Christians were all, all right from the beginning. Sunday was it. But then there were other things, you know, the, the Jewish laws that they had to realize, okay, we're not, we're not under Judaism anymore. And that was an evolution. Anyway, verse 16, uh, con, con, coming back to this, he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because he has too many relationships there. And they'll just, you know, he won't be able to leave. He just knew the people and it would have been hard to leave. So he wants to get out of there. Um, he doesn't know there's a ticket to Rome waiting for him in Jerusalem. That it would take him to Caesar. And uh, that Paul would notify the world that Christianity was unequaled. Unmatched. This happened. Because after Caesar, Nero and Paul met, you say, how do you know they met? Because Jesus said, I, you will go to Caesar. That's all we need to know. We don't have to have any other record. Christ said it. So uh, w after Nero meets with him and finds out, you know, Christianity is not a, form, a sect of Judaism. Things got worse for Christianity. Rome said, you know, we can persecute these guys. <laughs> they don't do anything for the economy like the, the, the Jews were doing. So as we learn from Scripture... We come to Scripture to learn so we learn about God. If you're, if, again, if you are following the world and you come to the church and you hear, you know, God disagrees with them. God disagrees with the culture, with the modernism. You have to make a decision. Am I learning Scripture to learn God or am I just playing games so the devil can have his way with me? On the other hand, you have Christians that come to learn Scripture and they're still struggling. And you wonder if it's working or not because of how your life is, because of how you feel, because of the things that are falling apart. And you wonder, is Bible study even worth it? Am I wasting my time? Well, let me ask you this. Are you still standing? Are you still coming to listen to God's word? You think there's three, three cheers in hell over that? You think hell's excited that you're still coming to church? Shortcomings and all, that Christ will receive you. John chapter 10, Jesus said, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, 
who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So he says that, in case you're still not clear on who I am, then understand who my Father is. And this is before the cross. This is when they had no knowledge of the church or the Holy Spirit in the context of the church. And the very thing Satan cannot defeat is your armor. And it should be dented, and it should be smoldering, and it should have the stench of perspiration on it. And that's what it calls, what's, what, what's called for to serve. That's evidence of remaining in Christ. And if you hand in your armor on the day of your death and it's polished and shiny, what does that say? That you had not used your war garment. So I close with this. Zechariah chapter 3. This is the story of a high priest in Israel named Joshua. Not to be confused with the leader Joshua. And uh, Zechariah gets this vision, and in this vision, he sees the mercy of God in action. And so I'll just read it to you. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he, which Yahweh, answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Jesus said, I'll give you a new garment. Hand in those filthy ones of your flesh, and hand in those of your service in Christ, your armor, and he will give us new clothes, new garments. Let's pray. Before I pray, does anybody get a little nod in? And the new church's sanctuary is on the third floor. <laughs> Our Father, we thank you for the humor that uh, you allow us in your word and life, and may we not abuse it. We thank you for the lessons. We thank you for the strong warnings from love for the guilty, that it is not intended to belittle them, but to rescue them. That the guilty would understand the devil is real. There is, there's no denying, there's no dispute. It's, his trophies are all over the place. But so are the Lord's. And we pray, Lord, that your word will achieve what you intended it to do, that it would not return void, but that it would bring not only fruit, but lasting fruit. You've been here this morning, and you've been playing around with the devil. The world has been influencing you, telling you how to live, telling you what to do, disagreeing with Christ, giving you that foul spirit of anger and everything that is difficult for others, a disagreeable spirit. If that's you, then you come up at the end for prayer. That's what the pastors are here for. It's one of the roles of the house of God. My house should be called a house of prayer, Jesus said. If you've never opened your heart to Christ, and you know he's been calling you, then come. Admit your sin before him. Own your guilt that he can take it away. The punishment will be removed. If you make this prayer in earnest, it is God taking away your filthy garments and clothing you with rich robes. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws, your commandments. You are God. You have every right 
to determine what is good and what is evil. And I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you that from this day forward, you become to me not only the one who saves my soul from a judgment I deserve, but you are the Lord of my life. I give my life to you right here, right now. Now, Father, if anyone has made that prayer, may they not hesitate to make their confession known when invited to share it with one of the pastors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.